remind me when we talk to the weed guy mm-hmm. uh, to find out if they have a strain that helps you with a uh, nose and throat infection. Ooh, is that what you have? <laughs> oh, man. In a world. Oh, listen to you. I could do those VOs. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The passing of a rock and roll legend will look back on the life of Tom Petty. He and the Heartbreakers make it into the top 10 songs about weed. The musician was an admitted pothead. We'll talk to Randy Rowe of the Grow Up Conference about the legalization of Mary Jane in Canada and how Snoop Dogg, what a surprise, is at the forefront. Plus, the top destinations for stoners with the munchies. Surprisingly, Taco Bell is not at the top of the list. And this week's show is brought to you by a dog, but not that one. Play dead? No, man, play Floyd. Jesus. <laughs> you think that was funny? You're sick. That's good. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Fresh off a 40th anniversary tour, the rock superstar who brought us some of the best driving songs ever has died. Tom Petty was 66. There had been so much confusion around his death in the first place. Yeah, uh, usually TMZ is really, really good at this sort of thing. They rarely get it wrong because they have some of the best sources inside things like police departments and EMS detachments and all the rest of it. And we had heard that he was discovered unconscious and not breathing without a pulse on Sunday night and that he was taken to hospital after EMS had resuscitated him to a certain degree and that uh, he was put on life support but then taken off support and then died on monday afternoon then a few hours later it's like whoa 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 he is off life support but he is still very sick but he is not dead so this was one of those cases where we had a source tell like in this case tmz and then everybody, knowing that TMZ rarely gets it wrong in these sorts of things, piled on. And then after that, it just snowballed. And everybody was quoting everybody else. So it just went around in circles and circles and circles until the TMZ had to say, wait, hang on. I'm not dead yet. I might be feeling better. Well, with that, they were getting their source from the Los Angeles Police Department. And it was the LAPD who had to back down and say that, no, um, we don't know for sure. This is not our file. That They weren't involved. So it sounds like someone tipped off TMZ early. And it just draws attention to the issue of when someone famous dies, everyone races to be the first to report it and then to follow through with the ancillary information. And what I got out of it was... Was someone had tweeted this? It was that whether he was dead or not, it at least got us listening 
to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for the day. Yeah, it did. And, you know, if that's the worst thing that happened, that's okay. You know, do you want to be first or do you want to be right? Well, this is the thing is um, whether it be picking a girlfriend, a job or the news, you've got that triangle and you can only pick two out of the three. Do you want the news fast? Do you want it efficient? Do you want it accurate? You can only pick two. And the thing is, is that rarely does fast and accurate work together. But like I said, it got us thinking about his music generally. And when I punched in Tom Petty, uh, Rolling Stone magazine had an interesting piece, and I didn't know this, and this works out really well based upon our scheduling, is that he was apparently a huge stoner. Oh, yeah, yes, he was. Let me run with you tonight, I'll take you Someone I used to see But she don't give a damn for me But let me get to the point Let's roll another joint Turn the radio to laugh I'm too alone to be proud And you don't know had a real problem with heroin in the 1990s. It's very private. Didn't hear too much about it. But yeah, he uh, he was uh, one of your consumers. Men's Journal quoted him as saying that he didn't have many vices. He had never been a big drinker. Quote, I didn't like the taste or the buzz and I can't stand being around drunks. And he never got into cocaine. They didn't mention anything about heroin. No, that was a very private situation. Uh, nobody talked about it much, much but he uh, he did battle it in the 1990s before he, he cleaned up uh, towards the end of the decade. One of my all-time favorite albums was Full Moon Fever, Running Down a Dream. Oh, that whole album is perfect for that, that cross-country drive kind of thing. Uh, what was interesting to me was that uh, one of the lines in the songs was, me and Del are singing Little Runaway. Yeah. And I can imagine a lot of people might think he's got a passenger in his seat named Delbert. But <laughs> no, no, his no. influences included Del Shannon. I'm a walking in the rain Tears are falling and I feel a pain a Wishing you were here by me To end this misery And I wonder I wonder Why Why, 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 why She ran away And I wonder Where she will Yeah. Now, what you have to remember about Tom Petty is that he was born in 1950. So he was just old enough to remember the original wave of rock and roll. So he became an Elvis fan at around nine or ten. He decided that he wanted to be in a band when he saw the Beatles in 1964. And then during that time, he was also into whatever was rock and roll was on the radio, including Del Shannon, Chubby Checker, and Jerry Lee Lewis, and and Little Richard, and, and all the rest of them. So yeah, he was able to. He sort of straddled the generation. 
But then, you know, by the time we get to the 1970s, he was in a band called Mud Crutch. They didn't last more than one album. And then he formed Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers with a couple of other guys from Mud Crutch. And uh, Tom Petty's sound was so stripped down and so melodic that it didn't really fit in with a lot of the mainstream rock at the time, which was Led Zeppelin and Van Halen and, and so on. So he was originally marketed, believe it or not, as a new wave artist. What? Oh, yeah. Originally, the first couple of albums, that was – it was kind of like the, the rock end of New Wave, but he was – you know, that they didn't know what to do with him. And that's why he had such a sour relationship with that first record label, which was MCA. It did not work out. And uh, he ended up in a contract that he wanted to get out of, and he couldn't get out of the contract, and the label decided they, they were going to bury him, and he went bankrupt, and – all that, all that drama just makes it all that much more fascinating about how he brought himself, uh, you know, out of that deep, deep hole in the early 1980s with, with uh, songs like, you know, or with uh, albums like uh, Dan the Torpedoes and, and a few others. We get stuff, we both know it, we don't talk too much about it. So by the time we get to your record, Full Moon Fever, in 1989, the man's a full-blown superstar because, you know, he had had some hits with Stevie Nicks. He was friends with George Harrison and Jeff Lynne and Bob Dylan and uh, Roy Orbison. And uh, he continued to have this string of hits and very successful tours right up until uh, last Monday when he finished a 40th anniversary tour with the Heartbreakers with uh, three sold-out shows at the Hollywood Bowl that everybody said was absolutely fantastic. September 29th, he tweeted, Thanks to everyone for supporting us for the last 40 years. Without you, there would be no us. It's true. He hinted to Rolling Stone that this was going to be the last ever Heartbreakers tour. So maybe he, well... Good timing. When the news started to hit, one of the headlines that really caught me was front man for the heartbreakers dead at 66. <sighs> no, Tom <laughs> Petty, you know, he, he had, was the heartbreakers. He was the heartbreakers. He had a bunch of bands. One of the things about Tom Petty is that he had this every man sort of appeal. He was from Florida, but his music really resonated in the heartland. And like John Mellencamp, he somehow managed to capture the the wishes, the hopes, the dreams, the fears, the aspirations of, of middle America. And it was that kind of attitude, that kind of sound, that kind of identification that made him one of the rock and roll superstars of the 80s and 90s. And this is why he's been able to survive for as long as he has because of this tremendous 
affection people have for a tremendously deep catalog. If they were going to do another desert trip, and they're probably going to do one in the in October of 2018, I had heard that he was going to be one of the six people performing. And that makes all the sense in the world to me. He's up there with what's left, which would be the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and a few others. After Full Moon Fever, he put out in 1994 Wild Flowers. And at that point, grunge was the big thing. The kids all wearing flannel and playing guitars. Uh, And Petty seemed to be able to sidestep a lot of that and maintain a, a unique feel that saved him from falling down that 90s path. Yeah, he was not... I mean, like a lot of these other classic rock bands, I mean, we really didn't start calling this classic rock until, you know, the late 1980s. And classic rock as a radio format took off in, in the early 1990s as an antidote or to, to whatever was happening with alternative and grunge. And uh, Petty was one of those artists that somehow managed to continue to release albums, new albums, albums of new material that uh, still got radio airplay on these classic rock or, or at least older rock leading radio stations. It's very tough for an artist to do something like that today. I mean, if Led Zeppelin came out with a record today, there'd be very few people that would play it because all they want to hear is Cashmere one more time. Oh, you're kidding me. Really? Oh, believe it or not. So he, again, found that little niche uh, that allowed him to continue to do what he was doing and continue to sell records. It helped that he was with the Traveling Wilburys, which had a sort of like an older sort of sound. And uh, but his his cred was was such that, uh, you know, if Tom Petty was putting out a record, people were going to play it. The Traveling Wilburys was interesting in that it stuck out against everything else that had been going on at the time. Roy Orbison was was the big guy behind it. And I can imagine for Tom Petty, that was a pretty big deal since Roy Orbison was probably somebody he grew up listening to. Oh, absolutely. Don't have to be ashamed of the car I drive. I'm just glad to be here, happy to feel that. And it don't matter if you're by my side. I'm satisfied. Well, it's all. been oh gosh in his early teens when when Orbison was at his had his at his peak and then remember Tom Petty wanted to be in a band after he saw the Beatles perform at age 13 on Ed Sullivan in February of 1964 so to be in a band with George Harrison ah that had to have been a a dream come true and then of course you bring in Jeff Lynn who became some sort of a um call it a, a creative soulmate uh and who and they continued to work together for years after that. I mean, it, it was a really powerful supergroup. And usually these supergroups don't work because too many egos come into play. But in this particular case, they lasted for two multi-platinum albums. And and then they went off and did their own own things again. And I think that that's about all you can expect from a, a group with, with that kind of firepower in it. Um, but he remained friends with everybody in the band even after they, their demise. As far as egos are concerned, I suspect there's an age component to that. Roy Orbison was quite advanced by the time they got together. Tom Petty, just even at that point, was a fairly mature man as well. I can imagine that a lot of the egos come into play with the younger big shots. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what? He was the kid in that band uh, because, uh, you know, Harrison would have been, you know, six, seven years older than him. Uh, Orbison was certainly older than him. Uh, Jeff Lynn would be around his same age, but probably just a little bit older. So, yeah, he was the kid. And uh, but he brought that American sensibility because, uh, you know, he and Orbison brought the American sensibility to that group with uh, the big guitars. And it's just, you know, it was it was a cool operation over at Ultimate Classic Rock dot com. They have the top 10 pot songs. Number six on the list. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from the Wildflowers 1994 album. You don't know how it feels. Yes. So Rolling Stone magazine flat out asked him, you know, as a Californian. Is the weed you get medical marijuana? And Petty said he doesn't have a prescription card, but he's certain he smoked some medical weed. He says it's everywhere. I don't smoke as much pot as I did at one point in my life, but I think the cat's out of the bag and it's going to be legalized. If you're going to sell liquor, you have to sell pot. Liquor is worse for you. I don't think pot's addictive. I've never felt like I've had to have it, you know? And then this is where the quote gets interesting. He pauses and he says, actually, no, I take that back. But it is safer than alcohol. Well, that's that's the argument a lot of people will, will say. Um, I don't know about the the smoking part of it because I mean you were still inhaling, you know, effluent. Uh, but certainly the, the the medicinal attributes of, of of cannabis seem to be, you know, indisputable. I mean, even my mother, my eighty one year old mother, is coming to me and my sister for advice. She has very bad arthritis in her left uh, left shoulder, and has reoccurring glaucoma. So she said, you know, I've heard that a little bit of this, this stuff that you kids are apparently so big into, not not me, my sister, but... Did uh, <laughs> you just out your sister? Oh, there's no outing of my sister. She's completely upfront about this sort of stuff. All right. And she uh, says, you know, anything to get rid of the pain, anything to make my eyesight better, I'm willing to try anything. So... She's one of the people I'm thinking of when things finally become legal on July the 1st here in Canada. And, and maybe, you know, some edibles, some oil, some, you know, something like that just to just to make mom feel better. One of my all time favorite stories is a family member whose name and genus I will not disclose, but was in need of this for a medical condition and was involved in the oils. You're familiar with the oils. A couple of drops in a, in a glass of water before bedtime. It'll help you sleep and got to the to the dregs, the bottom of the barrel, as it were, the, the end of the bottle. And so the solution was, well, may, why don't you just pour some water into this and then mix it around and I'll get out the last little remnants. Uh, this was uh perhaps the the skin flint in my family member going, well, why would I waste it? There's not, I paid for that. Um, and unfortunately, substantially overdosed. And whether you know this or not, when you overdose on weed, it's a simple matter of, oh, my God, I need to lie down. <laughs> so I guess there was some, some sediment, some residue in the bottom of the bottle. Right. Joining us now to talk about the music industry and the potential opportunities within the medical marijuana and the recreational market is Randy Rowe. He's the president of the Grow Up Conference and Expo, October 6th and 7th in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Randy, good to have you with us. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. I suppose it's no surprise that uh, Canadian Music Week is involved, considering um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's just a natural fit with uh, you know the, the music industry and, and just kind of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll type of thing. And I don't think there is a need for a lot of uh, beer and whiskey conferences in the area. So <laughs> I was at the 
O Cannabis Conference in April in, in yeah, Toronto, which followed, followed immediately after Canadian Music Week. Anybody who went there thinking that it was going to be a gathering of potheads was quickly disabused of that notion the moment they walked in because there was a very serious business uh, outlook for everybody who was an exhibitor. And there were, I don't know, flat 50, 60 exhibitors? Yeah, there were, I think they had over 100. Uh, close really? To 100. Yeah. Yeah, they sold out and ended up uh, packing a little bit more outside of their room there. But you're right. Um, and that's really... The, the industry for the cannabis industry. I think everybody has that idea that, oh my God, it's going to be, you know, everybody with long hair and hippie and peace and love and, you know, uh, everybody smoking and having their vapes out and things like that. And in reality, it's not about that. It's, um, it's about education. It's about uh, investing. It's about policing and, you know, trying to do a, a res- the, responsible thing for this type of industry. When I spoke with Bruce Linton over at Canopy Growth, also known as Tweed Marijuana for the medical side, and of course now they're they're going uh, with the recreational side too, he told me that he expects to go from 300,000 medical marijuana consumers in Canada to an industry that is 3 million consumers. Do those numbers jibe with what you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. One out of every 10 Canadians is going to be smoking weed? Well, they, I think they do already. It's a matter of how we're going to do it uh, recreational and how we're going to do it correctly by being able to sell it to them or, you know, or them doing it at home. In fact, I think the the, the actual numbers may be higher. I'm not sure, but we rank pretty high in, as far as, you know, the top 10 countries per person that, uh, that consumes cannabis. What I'm fascinated about is that this is only the second time in modern history that we are going to make a formerly illegal product, legal. Uh, We had alcohol, then we had prohibition, and then that obviously did not work, and prohibition was repealed on both sides of the border. Uh, Now we have a a substance, let's call it that, that was legal for a very long time and then made illegal. When did it become illegal in Canada? In the 1930s? Yeah, something like that. And and now, uh, after being, uh, you know, stigmatized as, as, as a gateway drug to all kinds of horrible things, people have realized that there are certain benefits to it, uh, not least of which is, is taxation and government control. It's going to be a very interesting sociological, economic and political experiment having Canada go to legal marijuana while the United States still considers pot to be a schedule one drug right up there with cocaine and heroin it's just going to be so bizarre given that america is all still about the war on drugs which includes marijuana and then to the north we're going to be just doing our own thing well it's it's kind of funny because you're right i mean it is considered an illegal drug up until you know until July, basically. Um, and I think a lot of people that you ask and that you talk to that are kind of, you know, coming back from the old school uh, still consider that. Um, in fact, I, I just told my mom last month that I was doing this show and I didn't even want to say anything to her. It just kind of leaked out. <laughs> but I mean, uh, it's funny because a lot of the companies that I deal with that are coming into this industry or coming over to this side are typical companies that wouldn't get involved with cannabis. So 
they kind of have it on the down low. They, they have separate companies to deal with the cannabis industry. So they have their, um, you know, consumer facing companies that everybody knows the brand, but when it comes to the cannabis, they kind of have it in the back burner where eventually it's going to be legal. So um, a lot of companies don't talk about their cannabis product and like the show that we do right now allows them to get out there without any embarrassment or any, you know, fear that, Hey, we're going to get looked down on you because you provide services or equipment to cannabis. And, you know, that's really what it's about. The reason that it's gotten this far and and we're at the point of legalizing it is from education. Um, you know, we found out that, hey, it does have a medicinal benefit. And, you know, there are some things that we can use this for. So aside from taxation, it actually has its benefits. And, you know, and I think the world's starting to realize that. And that comes from education and, you know, learning about the product. I think as well, there was this expectation that you would see Canada become sort of an Amsterdam uh, of North America and that come July 1st, 2018, you'd be able to walk into any kind of uh, weed shop, pick up whatever you want, sit there and smoke it in in public. But that's not the way the individual provinces seem to be going down that route. It it almost feels more like a boil a frog scenario. The frog doesn't know it's being boiled until the water, the heat in the water has been and slowly turned up. You you can't you can't just flat out do uh, an Amsterdam sort of situation. Over time, you've got to work your way into it. So I can imagine that people in in your line of work and, and those that would be uh, not just attendees at the conference, but also uh, participants, would say we were kind of hoping that we'd be able to be making a lot more money on day one than we will. Yeah, that's a good point. And you may have heard that the Ontario government announced uh, in September that they are looking at. Rolling out um, what we call a CCBO model, uh, just like the LCBO. So that raised a lot of uh, questions and you know got a lot of people talking. And I think it kind of um, I don't really have an opinion on this one way or the other, but I I kind of think it's going to be done in in small steps. But I think the first step is getting it legalized and getting it to the point where okay, now it's legalized. How do we deal with selling it how do we deal with policing how do we deal with you know somebody that's impaired the driving that has been smoking um you know how do we find that out how do we how do we keep it out of the the hands of the 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 kids and the teenagers i mean it's still considered an adult use so you got to look at it as vodka and you know and beer and spirits and and stuff like that because we don't make uh, alcohol readily available to to minors so we need to have the same approach when it comes to cannabis. It needs to be done properly, regulated properly, and everybody's got to be at the same level. The expectation, I think, was that um, Mr. Trudeau and the liberals at the federal level were opening this up to the world. But in reality, it seems to be more about a medical thing, more about a health thing, more about a, a, a criminality thing. People spending a life in prison for something that isn't going to kill anyone else. And so instead of opening it up widely, the idea was let's work our way into this because the last thing we want on day one are headlines of toddler uh, hospitalized after eating marijuana laced gummy bear. And, you know, that's the way that they, they have to do it. It has to be done kind of in increments. Um, and you're right. We don't want to come across as, you know, a great 
pot smoking nation, uh, the edible side of it, I don't even think they have any idea what they're doing with that and how to regulate it. And, you know, we need to keep it safe. We need to keep it safe for our kids. And at a medicinal side, let's use it to its benefit and let's get half those people that are going into jail. Um, you know, we won't have that anymore. If it's basically decriminalized, uh, I think is really a good thing here as far as what what we're ending up with. Canopy Growth and, and Tweed Marijuana signed up, of all people, to be their spokesperson, Snoop Dogg. Uh, he is a, an ambassador for the product. Let's let's be clear. But again, it's, you know, there's that, that stoner aspect of it. If you want to be taken seriously in the marketplace, he's kind of like having, you know, the trailer park boys sell your rum. <laughs> well, the Trailer Park Boys were signed up by Organogram, a competitor in Halifax in New Brunswick. Didn't they just sign up Organogram and essentially the Trailer Park Boys to be the ones to be the face of weed in that province? Yeah, you know, I, I think that really is just the, the branding. And you're, you're right, it does give that kind of wrong sense. If you look at anything that Snoop's doing as far as the, the cannabis side of it, is very, very smart as far as the way he approaches it. He doesn't really deal with any way that kind of handles weeds or sells the weed. He's, you know, he has a couple, several product lines. Um, I, I just read that he got involved in a software company in Toronto that takes care of some of the logistics and the cannabis side. So he's, he's really involved in it. So he's not, um, for people that don't know, would see that as, hey, you're right. That's almost like a, you know, a Cheech and Strong or a, or a trailer park boys type thing. But I mean, he's really a, a big part of the industry and he's involved with uh, Mary Jane, which is a, a media company uh, putting stuff out. So he, he's really involved and he's really knowledgeable as far as what's going on in this industry, um, both medicinal and recreational. So uh, just that I don't think a lot of people know that. There is, of course, the issue that um, you can't advertise. So how do you actually use a Snoop Dogg or the Trailer Park Boys to promote a product that you can't put a billboard on the side of a highway for? If somebody's associated with something that you like, you're going to tend to go that. And they are kind of allowed to let you know where the strand's coming from or just getting it in the news. Like we're talking right now that Snoop's associated with Canopy Growth. Well, people are going to pick up on that and they're going to hear that. So um, they're not really allowed to advertise, you know, in the normal traditional senses. So... All right. On the topic of edibles, Randy, this came out of the consumer research around cannabis, Cannabis Freakonomics, a new study uh, looking at the number of fast food restaurants in the States, the most popular among regular marijuana users. Number five, Subway at 8.7 percent. Burger King, 17.6 percent of stoners said that's where they went. Wendy's was not too far behind. Number two and number one. What would you think? McDonald's and their In-N-Out store. Oh, in and out would probably be a good one. Taco Bell at 18% and Mickey D's, the Golden Arches at 43.4%. <laughs> Great having you with us. Thank you so much. Taco Bell is the dog. That's what it is. Randy Rowe is the president of the Grow Up Conference and Expo, October 6th and 7th in Niagara Falls, Ontario. Thanks, guys. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. We have a new co-producer, and this co-producer has twice as many legs as you do. Another dog? We have another dog co-producer? We do. Jake the dog from <laughs> owner Ash Chopra has donated 25 bucks to the big show, making them a co-producer on the world's most popular podcast. Oh, that's fantastic. 
So, we also have an intern named Cameron Galbraith, who shelled out a dollar per episode. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. Now, Ash, via Jake, has 25 raffle tickets in the draw for the next big thing we give away. Cameron will get one. Well, what are we giving away next? What's what's? Oh, we're, we're not sharing what that is yet. Oh. That, that's still to come. But uh, we want to say thank you very much to Jake uh, for uh, getting his owner to cough up 25 bucks and make the whole big thing happen. Uh, thank you very much. This trend started with Taco the dog, who I meet uh, every once in a while at the dog park across the street from my house. Uh, if you have a fur baby that you would like to have immortalized in one way or another, please uh, find some money in the couch cushions and, and uh, donate it um, on behalf of your, your animal. The beauty thing, of course, is that because we use Patreon, you can set a lifetime limit. So every time we put out an episode, we'll ding your credit card, but we can put a limit on that so that we don't do it till kingdom come. If you're in the Edmonton area this week, I'll be appearing at the Up and Downtown Festival on Saturday afternoon. This is uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I plan to conduct one of my famous music geek quizzes. So uh, I do know that there are a number of Geeks and Beats listeners in northern Alberta. So come on by, say hello. And then next weekend, this is the 13th and 14th and 15th, I'll be at the big hi-fi and home electronics event called Taves. This is going to be at the Toronto Congress Centre near the airport. It's being billed as North America's ultimate consumer technology and hi-fi event. And my music meetup people will be there. That's always good. There, We do these things every once in a while. And We'd like to meet you at uh, at Taves. Uh, I will also be hosting a panel on opportunities and challenges in the media industry. So that should be fun. And there will be plenty of gadgets to touch and many buttons to push. Edmonton this weekend and Taves at the Toronto Congress Centre on the 13th, 14th and 15th. Over at GeeksAndBeats.com, we also have the compact disc turning 35. How old do you feel? Yeah, I remember. Oh, God, this would be okay. The compact disc would turn officially 35. 35 towards the end of the year. So it was released in Japan, I think, in uh, November, December 1982. Yep, that's according to Dr. Proximo as well, who wrote this uh, up for us at geeksandbeats.com. And by the way, I'm a little suspicious. I don't think he might actually be a real doctor. I don't think so either. Mm. Um, I certainly would. Well, if, if he was, you can go see him about your, your throat and nose problem right now. <laughs> but he does seem to know a thing or two about the first compact disc. Yeah, um, I remember I was working at a radio station in Brandon, Manitoba, and one of our sponsors, one of our advertisers was a local stereo shop. Was it Dell Stereo? All right, maybe this is Dr. Johnny Fever, and we're back on the air, coming at you live and jiving from Dell Stereo and Sound in downtown Cincinnati. And here's a real treat. I've got Dell Murdoch with me in person. Take it away, Dell. Right, sir, Johnny, what a wonderful sale we've got going on down here. It's unbelievable. That's right, folks. It's hard to believe. It is hard to believe, Johnny, because we're making deals down here that even the factory can't top. We're talking baguette turntables. We're talking Bob's lamplifiers. We're talking goring speakers. You name it, we're talking. We're talking hornings, barkers, blitzers, and macoochies. We're talking top-of-the-line merchandise that you can't find anyplace else for these prices. And why? Because Dell beats all deals. And why? Because I mark up nothing. I know, Johnny, call me crazy. You're crazy, Dell. No, it wasn't Dell Stereo, but it was something like that. I had to think about it because it might have been something really close to that. But their big thing was on Saturday nights at 11 o'clock, we would play a full album on a compact disc player from the studio. And you would promote the fact that the audio you were about to hear was on a crystal clear compact disc. Exactly. No clicks, no pops, no crackles, no scratches, just pure 
brilliant digital audio. Exactly the kind of thing you'd expect to get at Dell's stereo and sound. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just don't break anything, huh, guys? Dell, I got a van parked out front with a stereo system that could blow this whole store right into the river. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.